This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. I'm Eric Beery. I'm the Associate Director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, and I'm here on behalf of our Center Director, Sheldon Brown, um, and I'm so pleased to have the opportunity to stand up because, as many of you know who've been to events like this before, I love to talk about Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, he was so inspiring to me. And apropos to tonight's topic, he was nominated for the Nobel Prize and didn't win either. So I guess Sir Arthur could relate. Um, and uh, the, I've been thinking about blessings and family. And to introduce our associate director, uh, Dr. Keating. Dr. Keating has many blessings, and of course, his blessings include his lovely family. And we have to give a big thanks to his wife, Sarah, because she just had twins 10 days ago. And so she let Brian out of the house. So congratulations, uh, Brian and Sarah. You have so many blessings, and uh, we are very appreciative of your coming. So the other blessing that uh, uh, Brian has is his ability to investigate science and tell us about it. He is a fantastic and noted teacher here at UCSD, uh, giving lectures on all kinds of things, not only physics, but even things like poetry. But what most inspires me about uh, what Brian does is he builds telescopes. And the telescopes are just so cool. The neat thing about the telescopes that Brian will tell us about is you can't look through them. They're actually opaque. That's because they look at different things than visible light, than one, the things that we typically think of telescopes. So with uh, no further ado, I'd like to welcome our Associate Director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, Brian Keating. I like that you applaud me for having twins, okay? <laughs> I had the easy part. So it's a real pleasure to be here. I thank the library at UC San Diego uh, for many things, uh, in particular helping me in the uh, production of this book, which uh, I'm, I'm so proud of the way it turned out, and it really wouldn't have turned out this well without the help of Linda Klassen and others at the UC uh, System Library and people that I'll thank at the end. I'd like to also thank my fellow co-director, uh, Eric Veery, the double doctor, as we call him, MD-PhD, uh, for all his help in shepherding <coughs> the Arthur C. Clarke uh, Center for Human Imagination while our dear leader is recovering from a, from a cold. Um, so, yeah, so it's been a week of firsts for me. So we've had our first twins, so I like to show this. So I get the oohs and the ahs, and then I'm going to show a picture of a kitten playing with string. No, I'm not going to do that. I think that would be a cuteness overload. So these are my two newest uh, bangs in the universe, uh, Miriam and, and Emmanuel, and they are quite a blessing indeed, as Eric pointed out. So the other thing I'm blessed to do here is work with this team of cosmetologists. I mean, cosmologists. These are, and actually many people make that mistake. And have you ever thought about uh, why cosmology and cosmetology sound so similar? It's because they share the same prefix, cosm, and that's not an accident. Cosm in Greek means beautiful or appearance. 
And in the context of the beauty salon, where I spend a lot of my time, uh, <laughs> the, the cosm that study is the face the, uh, of the clientele that go to the beauty parlor. What we get to see is the adornment of the universe, the beautiful sign that the universe shows us. And we get to investigate it, as Eric said, by building technology. And these are the people that do it. Okay? Professors get to take a lot of credit for, for the accomplishments. But these are the people, some of whom are in the room today. I'm so proud of them. These are my students and my colleagues, Professor Cam Arnold, and uh, my many, many graduate students and undergrads that work here at UC San Diego to make us one of the top uh, cosmology programs in the world. So the adornment, the face that the universe presents to us for generations seemed like an infinite, infinitely dense barrier that could not be penetrated. It could only be penetrated with the human mind or the human vision was having, uh, had a limitation. We weren't able to see beyond what was conceived to be uh, a, a basic crystalline sphere onto which the stars were affixed in permanent fashion. And the only things that moved around were planets. In fact, the word planet means wanderer. And there's only a handful of planets, literally five planets, that could be seen with the naked eye. And so the ancients would, would speculate, well, what was beyond the limits of our vision? What was beyond the limits of what you could see through your eyes or even through a telescope? And it turned out that the technology to investigate that, this, this is a woodcut uh, which was produced soon after the invention of Adobe Photoshop. Uh, actually, no, it was produced in the 1800s. And it's, uh, it's, it's a woodcut. No one knows exactly who did it. And I've shown a colorized version here. But it shows this, this, uh, this, this wanderer. And he's looking out into what may lie beyond the limits of the human visible uh, sensation. And I think it wonderfully depicts what we're trying to do. Uh, and this quest has taken us on a quest that has overthrown paradigms generation after generation. The first sort of paradigm that, that cosmology or the study of astronomical objects indicated was that we were not the center of the Earth. The Earth was thought to be flat. It sure looks flat. And if you look, use a map in, uh, in, in any context, you'll know that the maps are always drawn on a, on a flat cartographic projection. And that's in order so that you can actually use these devices. If you had to carry around a globe everywhere uh, to get around, it would be quite inconvenient. So it sure looks flat to us, but actually we all take it for granted that the Earth isn't flat. Uh, we also take for granted that the, that the Earth is not the center of the solar system, although it really took the conjecture of Copernicus, observations of Kepler, and the really convincing arguments that were demonstrated by Galileo when he first turned a small refracting telescope to the heavens in the summer of 1609. And this telescope was one that he could look through. And connected to the focal point of that telescope was his eyeball, and his retina was connected very uh, closely to his brain. And he was able to conjecture things that had vexed philosophers and, and physicists for millennia beforehand. He didn't actually prove that we're not the center of the solar system. He just showed there are other centers of the solar system, namely the planet Jupiter, which has moons that orbit around it, not the Earth. So that was convincing evidence, at least, that there are multiple centers, and so therefore the Earth could not be the center of the universe. And the, the solar system was considered to be the universe back then. The next step out uh, in cosmology, well, once we, assure, we, once we found out that we weren't uh, the center of the solar system, our egos really took a pounding. And so we next uh, started to, to conjecture that, well, we might not be the center of the solar system, but we're the center of the galaxy. And all the maps of the galaxy that were made by the most uh, uh, notable astronomers of the 1800s depicted the Earth being placed at the center of the galaxy. Sure, we weren't the center of the, of the solar system, but we, at least we were the center of the galaxy. And that debate raged until the early part of the, 19, of the 1900s, 
when uh, 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 astronomers named Shapley and Curtis really went through a debate and found out that not only are we not the center of, the, of our galaxy, we're not the only galaxy in the universe. In fact, there are many other galaxies in the universe. This is a picture of the Hubble Deep Field, and this Hubble Deep Field shows many, many tons of different galaxies in addition to the Milky Way galaxy. So we know we're not the center of the solar system, we're not the center of the Earth, the solar system, the galaxy. Now the question is, are we the center of something called the multiverse? Are there multiple universes in which our universe, what we used to think of as the whole shebang, is just one nondescript, uh, insignificant universe within an infinity of possible other universes? I have a cartoon graph of this. You know, there could be another universe, and we're at the center of, of this of the sphere of, of, of observation called the horizon that we can look out and see things. But there could be another universe located either distance from us in space, perhaps one separated from us in time, perhaps separated by dimensionality, in, in, inhibiting or inhabiting rather in an, in a, a, an extra dimension, so-called extra dimension that we have no access to. So these are delightful things that were, for long periods of time, thought to be purely speculative until it was found that if, there was, if the multiverse existed, it would sort of be a consequence of a theory known as inflation. Inflation, I like to call the spark that ignited the Big Bang. And if the Big Bang had this ignition source, like a fuse that ignited it, then it would leave shrapnel behind. It would leave behind a signature, not in the form of light, not in the form of heat even, but in the form of ripples in space-time itself. These ripples are called gravitational waves. And so if inflation took place in the Big Bang's earliest trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, as theoretical physicists told us, we would see a pattern on the universe's oldest light, a light source called the cosmic microwave background radiation. That is a fossil relic of the universe's formation of the elements, a process that took place in the first 20 minutes or so after the Big Bang. I always like to point out that all the elements that we are eventually going to be made of took place and and were formed during a period of time, about 20 minutes, which is shorter than the sitcom The Big Bang Theory. So it's pretty amazing when you think about it in that way. So we set out and I designed, along with colleagues of mine at Caltech and other places, an instrument called BICEP2. I designed BICEP1. We upgraded it. Uh, it became known as BICEP2, kind of like the iPhone, iPhone X, iPhone triple X, whatever. I hope, hope there won't be a triple X. But, but anyway, um, I need to keep this rated G. This, uh, this telescope is a simple Galilean telescope. It uses lenses, lenses that the human eye can't see through because these lenses are opaque to visible light, but they transmit microwave light quite, quite beautifully. And they refract or bend the waves of microwaves that come from this distant heat source called the cosmic microwave background. Those rays get focused onto not Galileo's retina, but onto these exciting detectors called superconducting transition edge sensing bolometers. These detectors transduce the heat waves and convert them into electrical signals. From that point, we can digitize them, we can store that data, and we can analyze that data, and we can make maps. But we couldn't do it from San Diego. As nice as it is to live in San Diego, we had to take it to a place that's much colder, much drier, and much better in many ways than San Diego could ever be. It's also quite distant. It's called the South Pole Antarctica. This is the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. This was reached first time in 1911, and it was exactly like many of the, 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 the quests of the early part of the 1900s, to be first, to reach something first, to stake a flag in the ground as we did on the lunar surface. It was the moonshot of the early 1900s. And just like the moonshot, we haven't been back to the moon since 1974 or something like that, 40 years plus. 
people didn't go back to the uh, South Pole until about 40 years after it was first reached for the, uh, for, by human beings in 1911. And it goes to show you that sometimes people just want to get there first. And that happens a lot, not just in exploration of the Earth, but also in science as well, as I, as I will hopefully discuss. So I was there a couple times. You have to prove that you were there. You have to take a selfie. And then uh, soon after this, de- uh, this uh, instrument was deployed, we claimed that we saw evidence for this inflationary epoch that was imprinting itself on the pattern of heat called the cosmic microwave background. We saw these swirls, these twisting, curling patterns in the sky that theoreticians had told us would be indicative of the inflationary explosive origin of the universe, of the Big Bang's, uh, uh, of the Big Bang's creation itself. So we observed this signal, and that was tantamount to providing the most direct evidence that we could ever imagine for inflation. And then the other piece of the puzzle was that if inflation occurred, it seemed to mandate that there, were multiverse, that there was a multiverse, that there are multiple universes in addition to ours. So the lot chain of logic that we used was we found this pattern. It was uh, meant to indicate the origin of the universe in an inflationary epoch, and inextricably intertwined with the inflationary epoch was the multiverse. So it was incredibly exciting. We made this discovery. It made front-page headlines at every single newspaper in the world. Here's the New York Times in the lower right corner. You can see space ripples indicate Big Bang's smoking gun, the spark that ignited the Big Bang. You see uh, on top a press conference that was held, there's a viral video here of one of the founding fathers of inflation, Andre Linde. Got about 2 million hits the first day that it was released. But that wasn't all. One of the most gratifying piece of public relations that we got was in The Onion. So The Onion, you can see here, it said that top theoretical physicists and R&B singers meet to debate the meaning of forever. So they really have these, they didn't really convene these people, but there's Diana Ross and there's Michio Kaku, okay, the father of string theory. So on the bottom it says, panelists discuss whether it's theoretically possible to give you my heart forever. Okay. <laughs> And they talk about the last thing we see, primordial B-mode polarization, that twisting, curling pattern of microwaves indicative of inflation. And it says, whether or not you can tell this, the parallels between this and the love between India Ari and her man, all of which seem to have existed since the universe's infancy. So I thought that was fabulous. Unfortunately, this was the last sort of uh, uh, hopeful moment in, this, in, this, in the saga of this detection of this incredible finding that we made. And soon after, we began to get doubts, and doubts were, uh, and questions were put to our team uh, as to whether or not we had seen this imprimatur of inflation, this twisting pattern coming from the universe's after, afterglow, or if we had instead seen something much more prosaic, but much more all pervasive, namely dust. So there's dust in this room, there's dust that follows my kids around, my five kids around, I can't believe that. Um, but there's dust in the interstellar wind as well. And this dust is made from the exploded remnants of supernovae that shred, shed out all of their material into the medium that surrounds them. And these, and these particles of a former star are actually made of things that are very common, like iron. In fact, the iron that flows through your blood right now was once the product of an exploded sun. So it's quite amazing to think that you actually have stardust that's flowing through your veins right now. And this was flowing in the cosmos, and we believe it got in the way of the measurement that we were trying to, to or that we sought to measure. So we did an analysis with a, with a former competitor of ours, a satellite, a space-based satellite that was a million miles away from the Earth called Planck. 
And they, and, and they were originally our, our arch nemeses in some way, almost the villain of this story. It was the Planck satellite. Um, and, and then at the end, we kind of beat our telescopic swords into plowshares, and we combined forces to reveal what we had actually seen was not the universe's earliest inflationary moments. Instead, disappointingly, we had to retract that claim. And so the story of the book is how did that claim came, come to be made, why it was so important, what it was like, the, the fear, the pressure, the, the ultimate embarrassment of this, of this affair, and then how we literally pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and get back to work. So you can guess at the end of this was the, you know, a whooshing sound that, that went by, <laughs> and that was my Nobel Prize. I add insult to injury in a certain sense. Less than a year later, I came to work. And I said to one of my graduate students, I got an interesting piece of mail today, and it said, from the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences Nobel Foundation. And so I said to my graduate student, Fred, I said, huh, if it was what I deserved, I should have got it last week, because it was in early October. It was right after the Nobel Prizes had been announced for 2015. And it was an invitation for me, Brian Keating, a humble correspondent, to nominate the next year's winners of the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2016. I thought that was incredible. So I ignored the part at the upper right that's strictly confidential. Okay? If you're out there in Nobel in Sweden, uh, you know, I know this is my last shot at nominating people. But um, you know, I'm an academic, right? so I, I treat everything as a scholar would. So I got this letter. It asked me to nominate people. At first, I thought it was a great honor. And then I started to feel that uh, there were some problems with the Nobel Prize. In fact, some problems that are highlighted in this letter that I've underlined here uh, and that I'll discuss in the next uh, couple of moments, the last few moments of my talk. So I went back, I'm a scholar, academic, went back to Alfred Nobel's will written by hand in 1895, a year before he died. After reading the headline in the Parisian newspaper that he had picked up that said, Alfred Nobel, the merchant of death, is dead. Now, obviously, he's reading it, so reports of his demise were exaggerated, but it told him what life would be like and how he would be remembered if he were to die the next day. He, the inventor of dynamite, had killed, according to this article, more people in history than any other person. He wanted to rectify his public image. He wrote a will, and he gave all of his money, with a little exception that I'll explain in a minute, all to this Nobel Prize that bears his name. He had no spouse. He had no children. So this is his next of kin. So I read his will. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. I just highlight three different clauses here. One is that the prize was supposed to be given for the benefit of mankind, a discovery or invention that conferred the greatest benefit to mankind made during the preceding year, and this prize was supposed to be given to somebody whether or not he is Scandinavian, and we'll get into that. So there's been a lot of controversy, even just as recently as last week, involving Nobel Prizes of all different shapes and sizes. So there have been prizes given to people that some consider terrorists. Uh, there have been prizes given to the, the President of the United States after he took office 11 days prior to the awards eligibility. And even last year, the prize given in literature to Bob Dylan. So these have all co caused controversy. I'm not, I don't talk about the propriety of these awards in my book. My, expert, uh, my subject matter expertise is physics. So let's go back and ask ourselves, and discoveries made in physics or the physical sciences, let's test your knowledge first, okay? So I want you to raise your hand, A, B, or C, which of these three different inventions or discoveries won the Nobel Prize? So raise your hand if you think A, the RNA molecule, won the Nobel Prize. Okay, only one person, wow. Now B is the periodic table, which I'll remind you has an element named Nobelium, okay, after Alfred Nobel. And C looks like a lighthouse, okay? So B, who thinks B? Periodic table, come on, that's a big one, okay? And then C, the lighthouse. 
And then raise your hand if you don't like raising your hand. Okay, no, nobody likes to do that. Of course it's C. And it was given to Gustav Dahlen in 1912 for the invention of automatic regulators for use in conjunction with gas accumulators for illuminating lighthouses and buoys. Okay, that is just so important. And it really just revolutionizes our daily life. Now, we've had many noblists here in San Diego. Uh, I want to show one that Linda helped me get a picture of. This is a picture taken by Ansel Adams at UCSD. And it's an original print, and I was able to get it courtesy of Linda. Um, and it shows him in front of his eponymous hall there, or his, uh, the hall that's named after him. We also had a Nobel Prize winner that was here that did win the Nobel Prize in 2016. Not my nominee, but, uh, but someone else. And his name is uh, uh, Duncan Haldane. And he actually did the work that netted him his Nobel Prize while he was a professor here. And then some university on the East Coast, a big Ivy League school, put a bag of money in front of him. And he, uh, and he, and he went to Princeton. So good for them. And he's been at Princeton and for, for many decades. And that's a picture of him when he came back to UCSD last year. And he brought his actual Nobel Prize with him. Okay, so I'd been writing this book. This is the day I turned in the first draft of this book, Losing the Nobel Prize, in which I dissect the Nobel Prize process, who it's given to, why it's so seemingly so sexist and, and, and it's had racism in its past, all these things that made me so angry about the Nobel Prize and really changed my perspective on it. And I really came to see it as almost like an idol where people that are the most rational people in the world, physicists uh, that, that are used to looking at pure evidence, and they were basically ooing and aahing. That's the Nobel Prize. You can see it's glowing almost white hot. And people are just in love with this thing. It's amazing. And I just, and look, someone's taking a picture with it. I mean, I felt so embarrassed for these people, okay, <laughs> that, they, that they worship a, a, a literal, an, a, an engraved golden image of Alfred Nobel. How could they? I mean, that's disgusting. And wait a second. <laughs> Who's that? So even I, somehow the phone got, I took a picture. I took a selfie. Even though I've been writing this book. So this prize has a power unique in human history. I want to close with one of the problems I talk about a lot in the book, and it has a connection to UC San Diego as well. So Alfred Nobel's will begins by saying, I do hereby say, after thorough discussion, whatever, I want to give to my son, to my nephews, I can't pronounce, Haljamar and Ludwig Nobel, bequeath the sum of 200,000 Swedish crowns each, and to my niece, Mina, I give 100,000, okay? So the men got twice as much as the women, okay? So some say, is this the root of the Nobel Prize's, uh, you know, a legendary sexism? Well, maybe, but some of the sexism is actually more pernicious. So right here at UC San Diego, we had two of the pr- most preeminent astronomers who ever lived, Margaret Burbage, who's still, thankfully, quite very much alive, and Vera Rubin, who passed through UCSD for several years under the tutelage of... Margaret Burbage. Those are also portraits of her taken by Ansel Adams. And I assure you, astronomers, female and male, both spend their time at microscopes very rarely. Okay? <laughs> I, I don't remember the last time I used a microscope. But these women seem to be doing it. Maybe that was all the rage. Anyway, they both made foundational contributions to Nobel Prize-worthy subjects. In fact, Margaret contributed to the Nobel Prize that was won by William Fowler up at Caltech. So uh, he benefited from these observations that Margaret was uniquely suited to make. She helped to write the paper that ended up winning him the Nobel Prize in part. And then Vera Rubin was denied a Nobel Prize. She never won the Nobel Prize, even though she made a discovery that almost every astronomer considers to be Nobel worthy. And even the only two women in history who have ever won the Nobel Prize in physics, they won it grudgingly. Marie Curie, 
won it in uh, 1903 for radioactivity and the findings that she made with her husband, Pierre. And actually, the, no, the Nobel Prize Committee was not going to give it to her until her husband said, I'm going to turn down my share of the Nobel Prize unless you give it to my wife as well, because she did most of the work. <laughs> and then Maria Mayer, who was here at UC San Diego for many decades, or many years, rather, and she was, a, um, she was a, a nuclear physicist, she was nominated 27 times before she won the Nobel Prize. That's almost twice as many times as Albert Einstein was nominated. Now, why should that be surprising? Well, Albert Einstein, besides being recognized as one of the greatest physicists in history, was a Jew. In the early years of the Nobel Prize, Jews were almost expressly forbidden from winning the Nobel Prize. Why? Because of a procedure that's still in place in the Nobel Prize statutes today, which is that if you win a Nobel Prize, you're automatically eligible to nominate the winners for the rest of your life. So you're one of this, pre- this privileged class of physicists that gets to nominate Nobel Prize winners every year. So the Germans, who were doing some of the best physics in the world at the time, they were led by what was known as Hitler's chief of Aryan physics, and his name was Philip Lennard. And he said that Jews, like Einstein, practiced world-bluffing Jewish physics. It was theoretical physics. It wasn't German physics, which is experimental physics. Um, so I, I found that quite ironic, that, they, that she was actually denied longer than Einstein by almost a factor of two. And so she was the last woman to win it. That was 54 years ago. And when she did win it, the headline in the newspaper at the San Diego Union Tribune said, San Diego housewife wins Nobel Prize. <laughs> So even that was a little bit sexist. And it's not so surprising. So this is the medal of the Swedish Royal Academy. That is the official name of the Nobel Prize medallion. They were able to give me permission to print this in the book. And I, I bet they regret that. But, but anyway, <laughs> it shows two women on it. It shows Mother Nature and it shows the genius of science. So these are two women. And I thought back, I've been hearing a lot about this, this interesting uh, sociological test. And, and I want to see if it makes sense to you. So you see here two different women. There's one woman. There's another woman. And then you see a dude in the middle. And there's something called the Bechdel test. Has anyone heard of the Bechdel test? It says when, when two women are talking on screen in a movie, it's almost always the case, because of the way that shows are written, that they're talking about a man, that their conversation involves a man. So in this case, this is a failure of the back. It means that they're centered on this, on this man, Alfred Nobel. And in fact, there are only two women who have ever won it, means that there's only two more female Nobel Prize winners than there have been female popes. It's pretty interesting. Okay. <laughs> So why should we care about this? Well, it's Humanity's Superlative Award, and I found in the writing of it that he, they were not adhering to what Alfred Nobel expressly wrote in his will. And when somebody dies and they have no next of kin, there's really nothing to advocate for them other than their will. And they really disavowed much of what they've done. And I, I talk about how an estate lawyer might view their will throughout the book. And so with the help of some colleagues, we created a community called LosingTheNobelPrize.org where people can nominate uh, winners who are unjustly or unfairly denied the prize and make changes to the prize's structure, namely to change some of the statutes, which are pretty ossified and have not changed uh, in some cases in almost 50 years. So it's high time that it changes. And so I'd like to uh, leave you all with a word of thanks to many of the people here. I show people at UCSD in general, in white, that were just instrumental in making this book a possibility. And then in red, special attention to my graduate students. Because as I say in the book, a lot of the book is kind of an exploration of what it means to be a professor, to be a mentor to graduate students, and to be the weighty responsibility. Because I was told once that in Russian, the word scientist means one who was taught. 
And it really means that to be a scientist means you have to be a teacher and you were taught by somebody else. So I ask forgiveness to my students, some of whom are here, for being such a bad teacher to you in the last year when I was writing this book. And I, hope, I beseech you for forgiveness, but I hope that you will all join with me in this new quest to redeem the prize that is humanity's highest accolade. Thank you very much. So now I'd like to call up my good friend, Dr. David Brin, for a conversation. Hello, David. Good to see you so much. How much much better when they're edible? (laughs) (laughs) I remember the first time I saw a Nobel Prize up close. Um, It was Richard Feynman. It was 1970, and Richard Feynman had drilled a hole through his, and it was hanging from a chain (laughs) around his neck. Um, It was 1970, and he was wearing a turtleneck. And um, he bowed to me, and it jangled in my direction, and he said, may I borrow your date for this dance? (laughs) Um, He took her out on the dance floor. It was a little ditty called Inagata de Vida, the last 20 minutes. (laughs) And the, uh, he later had a paper that the turtleneck is not an item of male clothing. We need to vent. So within five minutes, he was almost choking. And he, he, he came back and he said, you, you must take my place. <laughs> well, like an idiot, I misunderstood him and became a physics major. <laughs> so the Nobel Prize can have pernicious effects in many indeed, ways. Indeed. Um, Brian, um, it was an honor to get to or read this uh, book in manuscript and, um, and to see how, um, how it was developing over time. And um, it's certainly getting an awful lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And um, Brian <clears throat> sent around an email saying, my dream has come true. I have a book. Uh, my dream would come true if I were, if, if I were instead of a low church physicist, <laughs> a high church physicist like you. So there. Um, in any event, um, we have a number of questions. So we're going to be limiting it to about 15 minutes, and then you'll have a chance to buy the book and, and get it signed uh, by Brian. Is this your first signing? Uh, I signed once before. I confess. Ah. I confess. Well, all right. It's, it's his first real signing. <laughs> That's um, right. Here at his home uh, at, at UCSD. And um, we have sat on this stage before. Yes. Uh, we were um, with Andy Friedman. We were the three physicists. We've done it three times on three different topics. Perhaps we'll do it again this summer. Yeah. Um, one was about the multiverse. That's true. And um, a topic which is, of course, uh, raised by the bicep uh, problems. So um, I, I'd like to... Um, dial in on a couple of uh, your complaints about the, um, about the Nobel. Um, it, the defenders say it draws attention and draws people into science, but uh, at the same time, you're concerned that it emphasizes competition over collaboration. Yeah. Uh, could you explicate a little bit? Yeah, so, so one of the rules of the Nobel Prize, which was not one of Al, uh, Alfred Nobel's uh, stipulations was that the Nobel Prize could go to at most three people, and actually it found it's actually found in Alfred Nobel's will that it should go to one person. So at first blush you might say, oh great, you know they really are being generous. They're giving it to three times as many people, 
But actually, in the early years, there was some uh, concern that, uh, that maybe even three wasn't enough. Even though science in the time of Alfred Nobel was typically done by, by one or two people at most. And it was much less collaborative than science is today. So BICEP was done, an experiment done by 49 collaborators working together over a period of almost a decade. Uh, in the case of the Nobel Prize, the stipulation says that you should award it for a discovery made during the preceding year by a single person. So it's come to uh, many people's minds that the restriction of three people causes a lot of competition, where competition need not take place. And in fact, the Peace Prize has no such restriction. The Peace Prize can be won by thousands of people. In fact, or it institutions. It can be won by entire institutions. And in that case, you wonder, you know, does that dilute the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the wonderful allure of the prize? Does it take away their motivation? I would say not, because they're committed to what they're doing, just the same way a physicist wouldn't necessarily do the work for the prize itself. But as I say in the book, the, the physicists who are striving to win the prize, as I admit in the book I was, I don't think that's really so much the problem. It's really, I make the analogy of the Academy Awards. So the Academy Awards, I don't think any actor or actress says, my whole goal is to win an, uh, win an Academy Award. Uh, but they, they, the uh, theatrical movie producers, they sure as heck want their, <laughs> their, their, uh, their talent to win Academy Awards, and it's very important to them. And that's why if you go to the National Science Foundation website, or you go to the Department of Energy or NASA, they'll list for you all the Nobel laureates that, that they've had on their, uh, that they've funded and, and produced. And even our university will recommend that, and it counts towards our rankings amongst other universities as well. So there's subtle pressures that get put in place, and I think that that's, uh, that's to the detriment of the way science is done today, as opposed to in 1895 when Alfred wrote his will. Well, um, we'll talk again in, in 10 minutes about competition, um, uh, which you know some people believe that it's not necessarily a bad thing, competition in its own right. But the notion that um, the Nobel, in it, when we were talking about these very, very large collaborative groups, um, it, it, the counter-argument is that it would wind up being the groups that would always win. And then you don't have uh, any kind of bragging rights because I'm a winner of the Nobel Prize if your paper was along with you know, 50 or 60 other people. Um, uh, that dilutes it. Yeah, but is that such a bad thing, right? So, so there's no law of physics that says that the Nobel Prize is the thing that one should aspire to, and that is really the proof or the, or the uh, authority that solidifies authority and conveys authority in the physical sciences. But it's almost elevated to this idol-like status. And, and I compare it in the book to almost a form of religion, where scientists have holidays set aside for the Nobel Prize ceremonies. They have feasts. They actually conduct the award ceremony on the anniversary of Alfred Nobel's death every year, which is kind of macabre. Uh, and they uh, also have the high priesthood. They have saints. They have sinners, the apostates like myself. And then they, of course, have, uh, instead of a crucifix, they have a gilded graven image of the portrait of Alfred Nobel on it. The, the golden calf. The golden calf. So, so I, I claim that even the hyper-rational, mostly secular scientists that make up my divinely inspired colleagues suffer from a little bit of a religious affiliation with the Nobel Prize. But haven't there been attempts to um, spread things out a bit by adding, uh, adding prizes, the Fields Medal in, in mathematics and, um, and various other um, uh, national, uh, national academy um, prizes and things like that. Uh, of course, the Presidential Medal 
uh, has been diluted in a completely different way because alternating administrations um, uh, have been using it for political um, reasons. Right. So but, I mean, I, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there's any question that the Nobel Prize is the superlative award in all of humanity. I don't, I don't think there's a close second to it. There are other prizes that are actually worth three times as much as the Nobel Prize in physics alone. But I think I've heard it said by winners of those prizes that they would trade in the money and that award for just a fraction of a Nobel Prize. And you know, it really, it really shows you how elevated this prize that's handed out by mainly you know, 500 mostly white men in Sweden, how it's become such a symbol of uh, aspiration for, as I said, funding agencies, individual researchers, universities, etc. Well, there was a scandal just in the newspapers just yesterday That's about right. um, the Academy of Literature right. in uh, Sweden, where the head, um, female, head of the um, Literary Academy in, um, in, in Sweden uh, had to resign um, because she was... Um, well, she was forced out. She was forced out yeah. by what appears to be a, um, a very obstinate bunch of, um, uh, shall we say, male troglodytes. Well, I think that's putting it mildly. I mean, her yeah. husband committed adultery, and for some reason she's taking the fall for his. So she's been de- removed from this, and the king of Sweden is now threatening to uh, perhaps not hold the ceremonies this year for yeah. the prize in literature. So I, a part of the book is written in an attempt to reform the Nobel Prize so it doesn't suffer these kinds of fates. Because I think, you know, when you look at it and you say to them, you know, I've had, I've had five female graduate students, and I think it's important to have role models, and we're blessed to have had Maria Mayer here, but she was 1954, and uh, 1963, rather, 54 years ago. And I think, you know, when, when there's, there's a lot of people that I can look to, and I, I look to her as, as, a, as a role model as well. But I think it sends a, it sends a very negative message when l- fewer than 1% of all laureates, you know, are come from, you know, 50% of the population. I think that's, it's detrimental, and I think part of it, you know, it comes down to you know, the way that the selection process is ingrained by the previous winners being automatically entitled to nominate next year's winners. And, and there's many simple reforms that I propose in the book that the Nobel Prize Committee could take if they want to save themselves. Because I think if the prize were to get boycotted, it would start to lose this luster that has been responsible for why it's had the allure that it's had for so many uh, a century and more now. Well, things do change. Um, the Hugo Awards in science fiction, for instance, this last year, of the, um, I think, 32 uh, authors who are nominated for various uh, fiction awards, novel, novelette, uh, and so on, I think maybe four or five are male. Mm. Mm. So, um, so things, uh, uh, things sometimes pass through a, an overshoot and uh, perhaps we'll have that sort of thing in the Nobel. Yeah, that's the hope of this, of this book and the website that we've created as well. Now, we both know um, one of the recent uh, winners, Kip Thorne of Caltech. I remember when I was there, um, all in awe of Richard Feynman. He was a very young physicist, and they were talking about his potential to uh, win this prize, and he just did, only not for any of the career <laughs> paths that he was on when he was young. Mm-hmm. Um, he won for LIGO's detection of gravitational waves. And the, the brilliant thing that most people think that he did was the choice of the, of the team 
that he would then be a senior member of. Right. Yeah, it's like they say, I think, in Russian, the most important choice is who you choose for your parents. That's right. <laughs> and so in, Hopefully in, my twins chose one. Well, well, no, but in physics, you, you get to choose your parents in a sense yes, in the choosing do. which team you're a member of. Exactly. And he was a sort of automatically became a leader of that team. Mm-hmm. And therefore, if that team succeeded... Right. So the comparison has been made between winning... A, something out of virtue and winning something out of a lottery. But there's a ground in between where it's a matter of your own choosing the right um, team that is going to, inevi- well, not inevitably, but have a very high likelihood of making a Nobel win. Yeah, and then also living long enough to receive it. So one of his colleagues, that create co-creator of LIGO experiment, was named Ron Drever. Ron Drever uh, was responsible for building the LIGO experiment in many ways in its most critical phase. And in the, uh, <clears throat> in the early 1980s or so, Barry Barish took over from him, but he was really responsible for the founding of this experiment. Now, what LIGO detected that won its Nobel Prize was the inspiring collapse and crash of these two massive black holes located more than a billion light years from Earth. These signals traveling for over a billion years reached the Earth, and when they reached the Earth, they created a signal in the LIGO detectors that eventually netted them their Nobel Prize. But the signal was in, came in in September, and by the time they announced the detection, it was February. They had missed the Nobel Prize deadline that I could have nominated them for. And had I been able to, and had they announced, I would have nominated Ronald Drever, but they didn't. So he ended up dying a year later, and that was the year he was eligible to win the Nobel Prize. But because of the rules that they changed in 1974, which they've overlooked a couple of times for white Swedish men who have been allowed to receive the Nobel Prize posthumously, they don't allow posthumous prizes. So the Nobel Prize committee wrote him out of the story and said, and said well, he was a part of it in the beginning, but then he left the, pro- left the project. Well, that could be said of any of them, including Kip Thorne. I mean, he, he went on to do other things as well. So I think there's, there's, there's problems with the, with the way the prize is awarded that ends up affecting how the population at large, the general public, views the Nobel Prize and the scientific discoveries that are made. Would you consider the possibility of um, having a sort of a multi-pronged approach in that um, since anybody who's going to get the prize from now on is going to be a member of a team, or uh, one thing that I've seen in science fiction stories is um, oh, this is, this is cute. In astrophysics um, uh, journals, uh, papers from before 1945, there's always thanks to their funders and all that, and they thank their computers. <laughs> because their computers were usually a list of women, mm-hmm. which you saw in uh, that movie uh, Hidden Figures, uh, the women who did the real work. And one of them got all the Nobel Prize money, and that was the wife of Albert Einstein. That's right. He thanked his computer and his wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had married a computer. I don't know. But the point is that thanking your computers stopped, but 20 years from now, if you don't thank your computer, all your lights in your house won't go on for the rest of your life. The computer's going to win the Nobel Prize. Um, <laughs> so that was circular to get back to the notion that science fiction has predicted that computers or AIs will be involved in these teams. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it might be a possibility that there might be in the prize whatever institution, and so all the junior people could at least take a nibble of that portion of the prize, and then some posthumous, a couple of posthumous, and then you have your three. 
Um, do you think that sort of thing would it would be more nuanced? Yeah. But I think do you so. think that would help to address your... Look, if they can figure it out in the Academy of uh, Motion Picture Arts how to give awards to multiple people, to not to, uh, or, you know, to um, notify who is nominated. So when I received this letter, I also was informed that I will not be notified. No one will ever know that I was a nominator unless I write a book about it. Uh, no one will ever know I'm for 50 years. So they keep not only who I nominated sealed longer than the Kennedy assassination files, they keep sealed my identity. And I, I wanted to know why that was because, you know, you always hear, what is, what is the, the, the cliche? It's just an honor to be nominated, right? So they deny people the, the, the benefit to their career of the, you know, being able to say that they were nominated unless somebody writes a book, right? So the question is, you know, can they learn from Hollywood? I actually say in the book, we have a lot to learn from Hollywood. And in fact, there's a parallel growth in the size of collaborations and the size of movie uh, staffs that are needed to make a motion picture. So they've both gone up exponentially since the 1940s as, as technology has improved. And the, all the producers will share an Oscar, right? So why can't that be with the Nobel Prize as well? There's no law of physics that prevents it. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, Patrick, uh, uh, the, um, the program manager for the um, Clark Center suggested this question. Playing devil's advocate, I'm sure some people will say, Brian, the Nobel might not be perfect, but it still gets people excited about new discoveries, about scientific research. And that's tremendous during a time in which support for that, let alone science, feels like it's waning. Um, so how do you respond to yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I, mean, I don't begrudge. I mean, to the extent that people know a living scientist, now that Stephen Hawking is unfortunately no longer with us, it might be Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, or a couple of other people. They don't, I, I'm not... Uh, so sure that they know who the Nobel laureates are, much less what they do. And many people have speculated that the rise in the Nobel Prize coincided with the rise of media attention. And, and certainly in Sweden, where they claim that 100 million people tune in every year, not in Sweden, that's 10 times the population in Sweden, but, uh, but around the world to, to witness these events on, on the internet. So I, I think it is good to celebrate science. And there are reformations, there are prizes that take place that award more than just a few people as the Nobel Prize, a literal handful of people. And I think we could learn from that as well to, to, um, you know, to popularize science. But in most cases, the new prizes are kind of derided because you'll have George Clooney presenting a prize to a physicist. You know, and, and they think that demeans science. I don't think so. I think anything you can do to, to illustrate the excitement of science, the passion of science, and take away this outdated notion that's just some lone genius working uh, in isolation that comes up with some eureka moment that that's what a scientist is. Because that's not what a scientist is. The... Um how many of you out here have seen the Paul Newman, Edward G. Robinson movie, The Prize? Uh, oh, if you haven't, this is highly pertinent to this. <laughs> Maybe it's a lovely movie, isn't uh-huh. it? Uh, I have not seen it. No. You have? No. Nope. Well, it's, it's about the Nobel Prize, yes, and, and, yes, and Paul I, Newman plays an American who has won the literary prize, and Edward G. Robinson is, up, is going to win for physics, and the East Germans um, do something nefarious. Mm-hmm. Um, the East Germans. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a very good movie. You should give it a... Now, you have in this book uh, some examples of your poetry, a, a poem about in showing his incredible resentment against dust. Yes, that's right. Um, the villain yeah, of the cosmos. It's, it's, Damn you, dust. Damn you, dust. No. Uh, <laughs> um, and you give your academic genealogy stretching back through time. You yes. see, you're the student of the student of the student. Go on. Yeah, so I have a a genealogy, a family tree that goes back to the late 1500s. It goes back uh, thanks to 
the source of all wisdom and knowledge, Wikipedia, I'm able to trace back my genealogy 17 generations back to uh, a scientist, uh, Leibniz, who worked in the late 1500s before Galileo ever turned a telescope to the sky. Well, Leibniz was the great competitor of Isaac Newton. Well, this is a different, this is Leibniz, not Leibniz. Oh, I see. Okay. 15, All right. Yeah, I was late 1500s, yes. But, the, um, but the, the notion that your genealogy is descending from student to yeah. teachers and then back and Yes, back. one of my uh, former graduate students, Darcy Barron, who's now a, a prize postdoctoral fellow at UC Berkeley, she uh, had this wonderful plaque made for me showing all of my advisors, 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 and uh, separate along a chain. And I thought it was so beautiful, so I had my illustrator, Schaefer Grubb, who designed all the uh, plots in the, in, the, in the book to uh, make a version of that. And then I show the people that come after me, my graduate students, who have received their PhDs, nine of them, in just 14 years. And that's, you know, they're, they're as close to being ideological children as biological children are. Uh, you hope that you, that you uh, transmit the good aspects of your personality and not your neuroses and, 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 uh, and issues. Though, of course, you still prioritize. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're not as loud as we Yes, yes. <laughs> it's all right. You're going to be having 14 years, exactly, 14 more years of hugs. Oh, that's right. And then it ends. Right? Pretty much exactly. That's what you told me last time. Uh, take my word for it. Um, uh, she'll, she'll get possibly as many as 18. Um, and then they'll resume sooner for her as well. All right, so the Science News had an interesting, pithy little quote uh, correlated to all this. When dust gets in your eyes, we can see things that aren't there. The same goes for the gleam of the Nobel Prize. Yeah. He could have done that so it scammed a little. It rhymed. Yes. It could be rephrased. I could get my friend Ray Armantrout here. She could that, craft it into something. That's, and what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> well, you're I, I, a I, poet I, that we all know. Yeah, well, I, can, <laughs> I can manage, I can manage a simple doggerel. Um, yeah, well, you know, the, oh, by the way, you mentioned the Bechdel test. Yes. Um, it, it's, it's very, very common misinterpretation that mm-hmm. it's a test whether or not two women in a movie are talking about anything other than a man. Mm-hmm. That's not true. There are tons, of, 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 tons and tons of movies that pass that version of the Bechdel test. Um, it's whether or not they are talking about relationships. Mm. You see, you know, steel magnolias and, and, and uh, French fried tomatoes and all of those things. Uh, there are many, many movies in which two women are on screen talking about something other than a man. That's true. It's whether or not they're talking about relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, but are instead talking about, geez, how are we going to solve this alien? Uh, there are actually some pre-Bechdel test examples of that. Yeah. How do we balance the objectivity of science requires with our very human drives and ambitions? What kinds of structures, incentives have been the best way to encourage this? Um, of course, I've thought about this a fair amount because I'm on the um, advisory board for NASA's Innovative and Advanced Concepts Group. And the question of how you can um, give out seed grants in ways that encourage uh, the simultaneous benefits of competition and collaboration. Yeah. Well, that's been a question for the Enlightenment which, ever since we started creating these new institutions like the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even back to Galileo. I mean, that's right. The notion that scientists are just dispassionate pursuers of facts and accumulators like Wikipedia is that walk I think that's that is a stereotype, and that's all it is. Uh, Galileo, the first you know human being to use a telescope to study the heavens, 
he was you know, utterly trying to convince the world of the Copernican principle's realism. So everything had to be flowing from that principle. Namely, when he had a theory of how the tides, how high tide and low tide work, it was really based on the fact that the sun is the center of the orbit of the Earth, and as the Earth rotates and re revolves, the water on the ocean sloshes back and forth like it does in about. It's utterly wrong. It's not why we have tides. But he wanted to convince himself. So he saw every piece of evidence through that lens, literally, and he did so at the telescope as well. And we wanted to see inflation. We wanted to see it not just to win a Nobel Prize. I think that was always, I mean, I still hear that. If you detect it, you could still win your Nobel Prize. And I think that really misses the point, because I think that leaves a scientist susceptible to one of the most pernicious forces that there is, which is bias, confirmation bias, when you end up discarding evidence that doesn't agree with your pre preconceived notions it, or hypotheses. Now, uh, if I could just uh, butt in here a little bit and argue with you, um, you know, I've, I've been writing a lot about transparency and uh, the good side of human competition. Sure. When it's all in the open mm -hmm. and when we're collaborating in the macro sense of creating an environment within which joy, joyful competition can take place, uh, fair competition, and uh, the destruction of American politics is an example of where a collaborative system that allows <coughs> the benefits of competition to flower. Sure. Um, uh, I think and, yes, but mm -hmm. and and I've often pointed out that one of the things that is being used against science right now is the notion that uh, we are lemmings who follow the paradigm with rigidity, when in fact scientists are among the most competitive humans that have ever been created. It's just that we believe that the competition is constrained by all sorts of things like traditions and, and fair play, and above all, objective reality. Right. So, you know, you wonder in the, you know, I think the transparency is wonderful, and I think uh, that is, an, 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 you know, not, not a utopian notion, but in science, if the scientific marketplace of ideas is not a free market, if there are dogmas that really prevail, if there are funding institutions that go to the same people year after year after year, the same groups, the same laboratory, then I, I don't think you have a free market, and I don't think that the competition is fair. And I look back and I say you know, in the book, the exact same words that Alfred Nobel put in his will, that the Nobel Prize was to award things for the benefit of mankind, are written on the lunar plaques on the lunar landers that are sitting on the moon right now. It says, we came in peace for all mankind. Now, does anybody think that we came, that was the whole reason was to benefit mankind? It was a part, part of it. Competition was sure good in that case, right? But I think a lot of it was to establish the United States in, in a, in a non-hot, cold war against the Soviet Union. And, and that had its purpose. And then you see that the moon has lay fallow for the last 50 years plus. So how much could the moon have been getting there benefited humanity? It should have benefited us much more. We should be there now. We should have been investigating it. Uh, but the same thing happened at the South Pole. Once it was reached, once it was conquered, once the flag was stuck into the ground, uh, the competition some seems to subside. And I see that happening in science, too. We would just like to thank our partners, the library, um, for putting on this evening tonight, and our speakers, David Brin and Brian Keating.